Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning adoring you through Christ by your spirit. And so we do. We love you and it's right to say so. You are the love of loves for us in our hearts that there is nothing that is to rise above you in our affections, in our desires, in our aims, in anything. You are to be everything to us. And we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you this morning that we can come and gather as people of the risen King. We can come unashamedly. We can come openly. We can come gladly singing and opening our Bibles and pondering and considering and meditating upon all of your good word. And so may you help us to do just that as those who adore you, who live for you. You made it us, you created us in your image that we might live lives of praise to your great and glorious name. It's why we exist, to declare your wonders, to rejoice and be glad in the God who made us, to glorify God and to enjoy him. And so may you help us to do that, to live that, and may we embrace these things for ourselves this morning, in our hearts, in our lives, in everything. And Father, may we come as well praying in view of the great many, many needs around us everywhere. And there are many, and we pray specifically for, or in view of the terrible shooting at Robb Elementary School, and just pray for the students there. We pray for the teachers there. We pray for the community there. You know all their need right now, Lord. The grief that is filling hearts, the longing, the trouble, the fears, the deep sadness, the questions. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant them comfort, that you would give them grace, and that you would lead them not to the world to find answers that it cannot give, but they would look to you as the one they need. And so help them, Father. Give grace to them and comfort, we pray. And may you give grace for us as a church that we, Lord, would take up our calling in every way as your word makes it plain. Help us to be a light in the world. Help us and sanctify us this morning as we go to your word here. And may indeed all glory be to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. And we'll be continuing our study walking through Esther with Esther chapter 6, looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 14. Now, of course, sleep or rest, it is a blessing. 
I know many of us would long to have perhaps sleep right now. And so sleep is often something that we want, but oftentimes not necessarily something that we always get. Maybe last night you can say that you did not get much sleep. And so right now maybe you wish you were asleep. So I want to encourage you or at least hope that I won't fulfill that desire today in this sermon by putting you to sleep. But what if I told you we all recognize our need for sleep and rest? But what if I told you that one night of sleep, or rather one night without sleep, might just well change the direction of your life forever and even the world forever? Well, you probably think it's a bit odd. But just thinking through this a bit, it could be that maybe you know, one night you can't sleep and then you, you, know, you pick up your Bible and, and maybe you're in a hotel room or maybe you, you don't want anything to do with God whatsoever and yet this night you're sitting there and you see your Bible on the stand or you see a Bible on the shelf or you see a Bible somewhere and you begin reading it and then God opens your eyes to see who he is and to see who Christ is. And you give your life to Christ. And your life is changed forever. That could happen. And I'm sure for many, it has happened exactly like that. Or maybe perhaps you, you can't sleep one night and you have a big job interview the next day. And you end up finally getting to sleep and then you miss this big job interview that you were really looking forward to. But in missing that job interview, it actually changes the direction of your life because you end up not even going that direction at all. And then you get this other job and maybe you even meet your spouse there. And so ways like this come in surprising ways in our lives. Now, I'm not saying that sleepless nights are ideal, right? I mean, raise your hand if you don't want to sleep tonight. You know? I don't think any of us would do that. I mean, that's not the way that we want things to go. Or I'm, I'm not encouraging that we should stay up all night and just kind of see what happens. Like, here's the new thing, you know. You want to be godly. Oh, well, here you go. You know, stay up all night every night. Well, I'll tell you right now, that's not the path to godliness. <laughs> that's the path to grumpiness. And that's not normally how our lives change, is by staying up all night or not getting sleep. And in, in saying all that, and even talking about all that, you're probably just like, well, this is odd. That's a rather odd point. Well, the oddity of the point makes the point. Not sleeping isn't normally something that we think of when we think, oh, that's going to change my life if I don't get sleep all night, you know? Or that's going to change the world. And so it is odd to talk that way. Yet, this is just what happens in the book of Esther. A sleepless night changes the world forever. Even up to this very moment, it is bearing ramifications 
for us. Well, to see this, let's look here then at our passage beginning with Esther chapter 6, verse 1. May the Lord work in our hearts, in our lives, at the reading of his heart-exposing word this morning. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, he's standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. And so Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of that city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men, his wife Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, up to this point in Esther... What we have seen so far has been somewhat of a mixture within this story of really mostly bad news with some glimpses of light or some glimpses of good news that kind of peek through. 
And so you remember, I mean, this wasn't necessarily bad news for everybody, but it was certainly bad news for Vashti. She was dismissed as queen. So very not good for her. Yet, intermixed in that, then Esther rose to become queen in her place. Story continues. Haman the Agagite, he makes this terrible, terrible, devilish plot to exterminate the Jews. And yet, interestingly, Esther, as queen, rises up. And she says, if I perish, I perish. And she stands and she gains favor with the king. And so we have this mixture of bad and good news. And then even so, she's got the favor of the king. As we saw from chapter 5, Mordecai, so Esther's cousin turned father, is about to be hanged on the gallows. And so all that's left at this point for Haman to accomplish that is to talk to the king, which he is planning to do in the morning, which is where we see this story pick up. And so yet, as things just seem on the edge of disaster for the Jews and for Mordecai and for Esther, we find here and we see here the king's great discovery, the king's great discovery. So if you remember earlier in the book of Esther in chapter 2, Mordecai, he saved the king's life, but he was not honored. He was basically totally forgotten. He wasn't promoted. Nothing happened. He was forgotten. Now, it is at this point as we're hearing all these things and we're hearing all these pieces maybe come in, kind of come in place, we need to kind of check ourselves. We need to see that this is not a story as in a work of fiction. Well, how nicely it's all coming together, you know? It's nice that the author kind of made this up in such a way that it's coming together like this. Well, this is not a story of fiction. It's not made up. All of these things actually happened. And it's the same thing with your own life. Your life, it is not a work of fiction. We are living here and now. You are here and now at Haven Baptist Church or at home living in the real world. And children, you also. This, this sermon is for you as well. And so if you're here, you're like, ah, oh, the preacher's preaching for all the adults. Well, no, this is for you also, children. So this is not a time for you to like back off and say, I'm tuning out because the preacher's preaching. This is a time for you to hear the word of God today. Because it is a word of God for you and for all of us. So don't tune out. In that world, the one you're in, this one, we see the very real hand of God. Not in a made-up world, but in this 
world, the one you're living in, adults, children, this world, we're seeing the hand of God. And so abounding and overflowing and bursting from these verses is the unmistakable hand of divine providence. What we see here is we see God mysteriously and actively governing all things by his hand. And that has not stopped even to this moment today in 2022. And so we see this in several ways here in Esther chapter 6. And so there are four evidences of divine providence in verses 1 through 5 here. Beginning where, or beginning with where we began. And where do we begin in this chapter and even in this sermon? No sleep, right? Well, the king could not sleep. And so this is where all of this begins. So every other evidence, the other three, they flow from this one. I mean, how strange, right? Now, we don't really know why. You know, the uh, king of Hazarus, he couldn't sleep. We're not told that here, but it could be, which would be another irony and another kind of evidence of providence, but we can't say that for certain. But it could be that the king was staying awake because of all the racket, right? Of what? The gallows being built overnight for Mordecai. You know, Haman had wanted it done, and he wanted it done quickly the, day, the night before, and so he got, they got to it, building this 75-foot-tall gallows. So that well could be the case. Yet his not sleeping would come at just the right time. Not a coincidence. Not an accident. Not chance. This is saying with bright lights, the hand of God. Divine providence. God is at work. So that's evidence one. Second evidence is the king asks for the book of memorable deeds. Now, if you've been paying attention in the book of Esther, this should set off some alerts in your mind, right? Or is it doing that for you right now? I mean, like, like little things like, wait a minute, I think I, I think I heard something about this book maybe earlier in the book of Esther. I don't know if you're, like a, you're a movie watcher like I am. I like movies because I like stories. And so in movies, if you, or shows, what often happens in movies, and you'll know this when I tell you what it is, you know, what, what they'll do is they'll kind of linger on something for a second, right? Or they'll, they'll zoom in on something. So it could be anything. It could be like car keys. You know, it could be a knife. You know, it could be a note. You know, and whatever it is, you notice it because it's going to matter later. Like, oh, huh. They're zooming in on that, those car keys. So, oh, and that bad guy, he's going into the kitchen where the car keys were that they zoomed on in later. That's not going to be good for this other person, right? And they do that on purpose. 
because it's going to matter later. Well, we had something like that earlier in the book of Esther. So back in chapter 2, after we read of Mordecai's fooling of the plot to assassinate the king, it said there in Esther chapter 2, verse 23, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Ha! Zooming in. (laughs) Take notice, because it's going to matter now. And so now, the king, who cannot sleep, not coincidentally, he asks for that book. (laughs) And so this book of memorable deeds, it was akin to like the king's honor roll. Now, of all the books you might ask for, when you cannot sleep, I can't imagine why you'd want to look for this one or like read this one, you know? Oh, could you, could you please hand me, you know, a detailed accounting of America's court proceedings from 1790 to today? I just love that stuff, you know? Or give me all the rules for accounting and CPA. I love to read all those rules and everything else. Can you please give those to me? I just love that stuff. Well, that's, that's kind of what the king was doing here. I mean, this is like, really? You want that book? Okay, well, sure, we'll get that for you. And so again, right? He shouldn't have done that. That's not the book you're going to be asking for. And yet he asks for this book. So that's the second evidence. Third, the king finds out about Mordecai. Now, among the various records that are in this book, however big it is, he comes across this one. (laughs) Now, just remember, this is five years later. So how did he get to that point? You know, like, well, read, why don't you read back five years before? Let's start, let's start there. Or maybe six, seven years. Let's start reading from there on. And so you see what's going on here, right? I mean, it's just... Totally right out in the open, we see the infinite wisdom of God's great and mysterious workings of providence. One after another. And then the fourth one. Haman was waiting. Haman was waiting. So after hearing all of this, hearing what Mordecai had done, reading the book, And everything else, the king needs counsel as he really always kind of needs counsel, as we've seen from the book of Esther. And it's always generally been bad counsel. And so really, he can't do much on his own, it seems like. And so he he asks, okay, who is in the court? Like, who's out there? I need some counsel on these things. And guess who's there? (laughs) Right? Not coincidence. There is Haman waiting to be heard. And maybe it was that he, he was up all night as well. He could have been. Could have been making a plan, kind of outlining how he would approach the king in order to you know, lay this request before the king for Mordecai to be hanged, wanting to just say it just right and get all the words right and everything else. 
Or maybe he was, he was certainly anxious about bringing this request before the king as quickly as he could. Because he hates Mordecai. And he wants him dead as fast as possible. And he doesn't want to have to deal with a line. <laughs> you, know, you know, he'd have to wait in line too <laughs> for the king. And so he, he's there early. Like, I'm here. When's the king going to say something, you know? And so he's there on the ready. And so in all this, we see that God is working not, though, to bring about the king's plans, not to bring about Haman's plans, but to bring about his own plans for his glory. And so all of this, beginning with a sleepless night, (laughs) which is magnifying the greatness of the power and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's not using a parting of the seas to do this. He is not doing some amazing miracle. We don't see any miracles specifically in the book of Esther to say, you see what God can do all by his powerful, wise hand? Which is what he's doing here with something as insignificant as a sleepless night. So it would be right at this point In hearing all of these things, if you haven't already done this in your life, that you would need to recognize, and you and I need to recognize that there is much that you don't know. (laughs) There is much that you don't know. All of this magnifies our finitude. How amazingly limited our vision is, isn't it? I mean, we really don't see all that much. I mean, from your perspective, can you tell me right now what's going on in Australia? Like now? Can you tell me without looking at your phone? Even your phone won't know, you know? Tell me about Africa. Let's get closer. Canada, can you do that? What about, what about in the other room? Can you tell me that? Well, no, right? I mean, our perspective is very, very limited. We only see it from our angle. But God, he sees everything from every single angle. You can possibly see it, even possible angles. Which is crazy to think about. He knows everything. Even possibilities. And so he misses nothing. Nor does he miss your heart or my heart. He knows it all. As Hebrews 4.13 appropriately challenges all of us. And calls us to remember that no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked. And exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so as we hear this, our response is not to be one of wrangling and 
wrestling with the reality and the truth of divine providence because it is whether you like it or not. And let me just say, it's in the Bible. I hope you like it because it is who God is. You're not going to adjust who he is just because you don't like it. As it says in Proverbs, as we saw a few weeks ago, the king's heart is in the Lord's hands and he directs it wherever he wills. But instead of that, instead of wrestling and wrangling with it, you and I, we need to believe it and let it be something that maybe it hasn't been before, but to be a bulwark, a refuge, a pillar for your soul. Because our faith, our belief, should directly impact our life our thinking, our practice, as we look out over a sleepless night even, as we look out over this or that trial, over this, these challenges of life and the world and America and everything else, we don't look out and say, well, it's all just chaos, all just chance. We look out and we say, I believe in a God who is sovereign and he is working all of these things out. I don't know how it's all going to fit together in the end except for Revelation and all those passages that talk about eschatology, last things. But I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust him and lean on him. So as you face this world, as you face sleepless nights, even in the direst of circumstances, trust him, trust God. Even in the darkest of days, the most ferocious of storms may come upon you and your life, your family, this community, this church. Your heart may get to a place where it is downcast, Upon downcast, you can't see the light. Well, what is to be our response in that? We are to trust him even so. We are to look up and there we will see light. Even if our hearts remain sad, grieving, lamenting, and broken. Look up. Because your deliverer, he is not far off, but he is near. You and I, you don't know what the Lord has planned in your life. And with all these things that are going on. And that's why grumbling and slander and things like that, or grumbling and complaining, that goes against this. That's why you see in Exodus and God coming down on the people of Israel so hard. You're not complaining against the air. You're complaining against me. Because God is in control. You don't know what the Lord has planned, what's going on in your life right now. But he is at work. And you are to trust him, brother, sister, Trust him. You know, when I think back about my own life even, you know, many of you know my testimony of how I came to faith in Christ. 
You know, just hearing all that, you would think, and I think hearing all the oddities of my testimony even, maybe even of your testimony, you could say the same thing. You're just like, what? I mean, surely not. I mean, all that stuff happened and you ended up becoming a believer in Christ. I mean, I'm not going to go into my full testimony here this morning, but just listen. I mean, God, he used vampire books, bodybuilding. Is that strange? <laughs> a back injury, working only on weekends, and maybe not so strange, the prayers of my mom and even the prayers of my future wife, who I had never met in my life, who was praying for her future husband to come and look to the Lord. Well, God used all those things to bring me to himself. He wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's the new evangelism strategy. You know, vampire books. <laughs> Everybody needs to take up bodybuilding. Then we can reach people for the gospel everywhere. You know, I mean, that, that's not that's not the case. I'm like, these aren't things that I did. These are all things that he did. And I would imagine for many of you, you could say the same thing. You see the hand of God. In your life. And so as we see these evidence of providence, we see the reality of providence May your faith be strengthened in the Lord this morning, whatever it is you're going through. You can trust him. So from the king's great discovery, we then turn from that to see here Haman's great disaster. Haman's great disaster. Now, as far as Haman knew, up to this moment, everything is going good, you know? I mean, everything's going according to plan. I mean, the plot to exterminate the Jews is right on track. You know, I, he, he hates Mordecai, and he has a plan, even as the gallows built, and so it's all going fine. And yet we see rather quickly a living example of how pride goes before destruction. Our pride goes before destruction. And with this, this question here that the king asks, I mean, we could well list that as another evidence of divine providence. Number five. I mean, it just keeps going. <laughs> What does the king ask? Well, verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? A neutral question. I mean, the king, he does not identify who he's talking about. He's not, he doesn't say Haman. He doesn't say Mordecai. He doesn't say anyone in particular. It's just a neutral question. Now, if he had said Mordecai, oh, wow, I mean... That would change things quite a bit, wouldn't it? I mean, Haman's response would be different. Oh, you want to honor him? Well, I'll tell you how you can honor him. You know, I mean, it would be entirely different. Yet, as Haman has made very clear, 
he is foremost in his own affections. And so naturally, he doesn't think of anybody else. Of course, (laughs) you know, the king would want to honor me. I mean, I'm hot stuff, you know, remember we saw last time? He's going to be thinking about me. And so he says in verse 6, or it says to himself, And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Well, Proverbs 16, 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so it is what happens next here. As Haman would, he... He recommends the loftiest of honors because he thinks that all of that stuff he's saying, it's going to be all showered upon him. He's like, yes, I'm going to be honored. And so his counsel, it comes with a mountain of hubris. He wants everyone to treat him like the king. I mean, do you see that's what he's doing here? I mean, that's why he recommends the taking of the royal robes, the taking of the king's horse, and a royal crown being placed upon the person the king desires to honor. He is putting himself as close to the king in kingly honor as he possibly can. Because he already thinks that highly of himself. And he wants a public display where everybody will do that. And shower him with praise. But as we know, it's not to be. At least not for Haman. (laughs) And so here we see a great reversal. Mordecai is honored. And Haman is undone. And so the king likes Haman's ideas. You didn't think there was humor in the book of Esther. We're seeing it right now. Biblical Hebraic humor. And so the king, he tells Haman, I like it. I like your counsel. All right, well, go and do everything you just said. Don't leave anything out of that. Go and honor Mordecai. (laughs) Yeah. And Haman's here like waiting like, oh, he's going to say my name. He's going to say my name. And he's like, oh, what? Mordecai. And you can imagine, wow, how Haman's heart drops. It must have been like hot lava to the soul, just kind of flooding through him all at once. I mean, if you could have heard it, it would have sounded absolutely terrible to hear this crashing, this breaking, kind of a snapping and melting away of everything that's going on in his heart, in his life. I mean, his plans, his future, his idol of praise has come crashing down loudly. And so he was anxious to bring his request to the king to have Mordecai hanged. Yet now he is going to honor Mordecai in the most public and spectacular way you can imagine. 
And by the way, he's going to be the one doing it. Here you go, Mordecai. It looks nice. Not. I mean, I mean, he's having to put all this on. And then he has to go out himself publicly saying, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Proclaiming throughout the city a gunshot to the soul for Haman. And yet he did it. And Mordecai went back to the king's gate while Haman was absolutely broken. His fall had come, and it was and is still coming. And so as we see all of this, it is unmistakable. We must see this was by no human This was not by any human hand. The spotlight, it is not on Esther. The spotlight in the book of Esther, it's not on Mordecai. It's not on Haman. It is not on the king. In this story, this point, this is a pivotal point, a great reversal where it's saying, you want to know who is at root of this reversal? It's lifting that one up for all to see. And it's not Esther. It's not anybody in this narrative. One commentator writes of this moment, chapter 6, by making the pivot point of the peripety an insignificant event rather than the point of highest dramatic fashion, the author is taking the focus away from human action. And the characters of the story are not spotlighted as the cause of the reversal. This reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. And we know who that unseen power is at the root of this reversal. It is none other than the living and triune God. And so we see why human pride is so insidious, it's so deceptive, and absolutely wicked. How we love our praise, how we love our positions, how we love ourselves. Yet, the question is, as we're living our lives, as we're building our houses, as we're buying our things, where is God? Where is our praise? Where is our adoration? Where is our thanksgiving? Where is our adoration of the one who so cares for us? Who has given us life? Who gives us breath? 
who gives us a job, who gives us a home, who gives us a spouse, who gives us our children, who gives us an education, and so on. Are we abounding with rejoicing in God? Because none of those things ultimately belong to me or to us. These pews, this building, your clothes, your things, none of it belong to you. God has given it all. And how right it would be that we would pray, Oh Lord, make me humble. Make us humble. Because I so often don't see that in my own heart. I see a lack of thanksgiving, a lack of praise, a lack of adoration. So Lord, help me see that. And help me show my children and my husband and my wife that. And show my neighbors and everyone. And so see this was by no human hand. And then also see that this is an opportunity to repent. An opportunity to repent. Now in God's grand plan, I wonder here, taking all the thrust of scripture, how God gives opportunities for repentance. If this was part of the pause here for Haman, part of Haman's grand humbling, could it be that this was an opportunity? It was surely his downfall. But could it be that this was an opportunity even if only a brief one, if even only for a moment before the eunuchs come? to take him to the feast, for Haman to see what he had done and repent before the God of heaven and earth. I mean, it says in verse 12, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. I mean, we take for granted times like these. Perhaps you are this morning. Maybe you're here and you're saying, well, there's going to be another sermon. I might go and even listen to another preacher today. Or I'm a child, you know, this doesn't relate to me. I'm going to have a big, full life. Will you? You don't know that. You don't even know what's an hour from now. I don't know what's an hour from now. So will you? It may just simply be a brief opportunity. And yet for many of you, I know it's not brief. You've been here Sunday after Sunday. You've heard the word of God preached. But perhaps this is that brief moment for you. Where you are humbled. And it's not time for you to come to a moment like this one and think, woe is me, 
you know, everyone else is against me. No one's listening to me. No one's honoring me. You know, no one's thanking me for what I've done. No one's thinking of me. Well, friend, that may very well be your moment and not for Haman's response of continuing down the road of pride and rebellion against God, but instead for prayer, for crying out, not to foolish counselors, but to the God of heaven and earth, the one who loves you and who sent his son for you. This is the day of salvation. Christ has come for you to save you, to give you life, to give you forgiveness, to give you joy, and to give you salvation. And so will you trust in him this morning? Not in some hypothetical, I'll do it later sort of way, but will you put your faith in Christ now? Because he is true. He is true. And you can trust him and believe him right now. And then see also, from all this, you're called to please him. You're called to please him. There is a sword of honor that you can have right now in this world. You might sell everything to get it. You might even sell your family. You might sell your time. You might sell your life. But you can have it if you want it that bad. You can bow to the world. You can bow to its lofty mansions. You can bow to its movements and to its ideas and its trends and its philosophies. But know this and know it well that you are aiming the wrong direction. That was where Haman was aiming. And he is an illustration of what it will look like for everyone who does not repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to aim your life at something worthwhile, aim it at pleasing God, at living for God through Christ by His Spirit who is in you, if you know Him this morning. Now that may not mean honor or riches or being noticed or noteworthy. But I say to that, and I hope you say to that as well, so be it. (laughs) My life is His. You get all the glory, God. And if that means I go in the mission field and no one ever knows my name, praise your name that I gave my life in service to Christ. And so see your call to please him and then see there is another great reversal coming. There is another great reversal coming. We are presently living under the sad umbrella of the world, yet it won't always be this way. 
the length of this fallen, broken age will not compare to eternity. So what the world is honoring now, friends, please hear me, it will not endure. In all love to anyone who is here, who may be lost, unbelieving right now, Pride Month, this month, may be set forth to you as acceptable and right. Yet we aren't to look at things the way the world does. We need to ask the question, not what does the world and how does it see these things? We need to ask the big question, how does God view these things? And if you just ask that question and you go to the Word of God, it will cause you to tremble. This month is not a month of pride. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ this morning, it is not a month of pride for us. We are not glad in what the world is glad in. There's no pride in abandoning God's design. There's no pride in abandoning His Word. There is no pride in abandoning what God has set forth. Gender, biblical marriage, sexual purity. I would say that instead this month, for us as believers, instead needs to be a month Not of pride, but of lament. Of humble prayer. A month of humbling ourselves and praying for those lost in the world and their sin and under the wiles of the devil. Because at the bottom of it all, that's what's going on. And I pray for you, if you're here struggling with those things within yourself. Hear the word of God this morning that Satan has told you a lie and God, he is giving you the truth and saying, no, no, don't take up the chains of the world, but take up the freedom and the life and the living water that is found only in my son, Jesus Christ. Then you'll find your identity because you were made for God. You were made for him. And so there will be a great reversal and so the high now will be brought low then. And the low now will be brought high then. There will be a book of memorable deeds then also. As Jill read a moment ago from Revelation 20, The books will be opened. Recording what you have done. Not saying that you have to earn your salvation, but someone who knows Jesus Christ, they will, flowing from them, will be things that you will do. Your tree will not be filled with wickedness, but with fruitfulness to the glory of God.
And so over your name, as those books are opened on that day, great day of reversal, will there be written a child of the Lord, a child of the Savior, a child of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, redeemed by the Lamb who was slain. Will that be written over you? So in view of such a great reversal, how will you respond to the word and live for God now, this morning? How will you live for him in the midst of the unknown? Even when your questions are left unanswered and maybe are never answered in this life, how will you be his servant living for him now? How will you use what God has given you? And not just in respect to money, but how will you use your time he is giving you while you have it? How will you use the giftings that he has given you for his glory? How will you use your hands and feet? How will you use his word for his namesake? How will you trust him in the midst of wave after wave of trouble? So in view of our great God this morning and his great inestimable mercy and the honor that endures, may it be that we would let all glory and honor and praise be to God. A sleeping night can change the world, or a sleepless night can change the world. It did, as we've seen this morning. But friend, you don't need a sleepless night to know God. You don't need a sleepless night to live for what matters and to hear God's word. And so hear him now, this morning. Hear him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Help us, Lord. May we respond. Our hearts, our minds, our lives are open before you. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.